there has been so much war and so much brutality. There's so much need for basic necessity. We're talking nappies, food, fuel, clean water. This is something that people need for survival. So a lot of aid agencies have been trying to deliver these supplies. I'm Venetia Rainey, and this is Battle Lines. Regardless of who stands with Israel, Israel will fight until this battle is won. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. I made wartime decisions. I know the choices are never clear or easy for the leadership. I just find bombs and I find dead people, but it's a really scary thing for me. In this episode, we speak to senior foreign correspondent Sophia Yan about Israel's controversial planned offensive in Rafah and how the conflict is drawing in China. I then speak to Deputy U.S. Editor Rosina Sabur, who reports from the CPAC conference about Joe Biden's shifting approach to the war and what it might mean for the U.S. election. Finally, we catch up with our own David Knowles, who's on the ground in Kyiv, where he's reporting on the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's Friday, the 23rd of February, 2024. We start in Gaza. All eyes have been on Rafa this week as fears grow of an impending Israeli ground invasion of the southernmost city in the Gaza Strip. So what are conditions like in Rafa right now? And is the tide starting to turn against Israel's military operation on a global level? I caught up with Sophia to find out more. Thanks for joining us, Sophia. I want to start by looking at the situation in Rafa. Obviously, this week we heard that there was a deadline set by Israel for its invasion. Can you tell us what they said? So Israel this week has said that they will move in on Rafa in a very big way, attacking more heavily and more strongly than it has been already by the 10th of March when Ramadan begins, if Hamas doesn't release all remaining hostages by then. So we're really in a deadlock at this moment. Israel has always said this. They want all the hostages freed. They won't entertain the idea of even thinking or talking about a ceasefire until that happens. But Hamas has kept to its line, saying they won't budge on anything unless there's a ceasefire agreed first. So it's really a difficult situation in Rafah now. We've got more than a million Palestinians. They're crammed into a very small area. It's a tent city. These people don't have places. They don't have homes to stay in, to shelter in. And they've been pushed from Gaza down all the way to this border crossing point that straddles Egypt. Gaza itself is not that big. It's about 25 miles long, seven and a half miles at its widest point. So even in that space, we're not even talking about people spread across the strip anymore. We're talking about people who've been fleeing war for many months now in Rafah. And so if Israel goes in the way that the military can, because the IDF has a lot of firepower, they've got the upper hand at this point. We're talking about a, a potentially very catastrophic situation with all those people there. And just to clarify for our listeners, because they might be confused what that means by Israel going in for an invasion. They obviously are already operating in Gaza. And we do hear reports of deaths in Rafah. There were, there were airstrikes overnight, and I think more than 90 people were killed. Can you sort of explain the difference between what this March 10th deadline is and what's happening on the ground there now? So it would be a 
presumably a much stronger military offensive than what we've already seen. Uh, Israel has been attacking and bombarding different parts of the Strip, including in Rafah for now many months, uh, different parts of the Strip. Uh, and so it's really their way of trying to finish what they started. This is while the Israeli, well, for instance, Prime Minister Netanyahu has been characterizing everything. The government, especially Netanyahu, has vowed that they will not stop until Hamas is eradicated. And so Rafa, in a way, is very symbolic because this is the very last point. This is where the border to Egypt is. And now they've gone from the north down to the south of the Gaza Strip. So hitting and bombarding Rafa in a very big way, if they don't get what they want, if Israel doesn't get what they want, which is all remaining hostages freed, this in so many ways represents what they've been talking about all this time. It's a good point. You mentioned that Netanyahu wants to obliterate Hamas completely. What what would be their aim to go into Rafa? What what are they looking for? Who are they looking for? Well, there are a lot of Hamas senior leaders who are still thought to be hiding out in Gaza. A lot of them are in other parts of the Middle East. But in terms of what Israel's thinking, finding these people, trying to get every single last militant, this is what they're talking about. And there's a debate as to whether or not this is possible, because you're talking about, of course, uh, physically finding a lot of these people who have been able to evade capture for some time, evade being assassinated as well. Uh, And also, there's a a sentiment that a lot of people say Hamas is a mentality. It's not just a, a physical organization of people, a band of people together who believe in similar aims. But That is an idea. Uh, And there's also a debate about what's happening and whether this is radicalizing uh, a whole other generation of people. So can Israel really do it? Can they actually eradicate Hamas, completely get rid of this organization? I mean, this is really up for debate. And so this is the broader context around everything that's happening right now and, and all the attention that's placed on Rafah. I want to ask you as well about what's going on in another part of the Gaza Strip, and that's up in the north. What's the situation like there at the moment? It's sort of fallen out of the headlines. Well, the humanitarian crisis is running throughout Gaza. We've focused a lot on Rafah, but because there has been so much war and so much brutality, uh, there's so much need for basic necessity. We're talking nappies, food, fuel, clean water. This is something that people need for survival. So a lot of aid agencies have been trying to deliver these supplies. But it's been tough because of the fighting uh, and because it's such a desperate situation now. In the North, there have been reports of looting incidents, of some violence because people need so much that they can't get. Uh, Prices have gone up exponentially too for what is available. And so it really sounds like things are quite chaotic, people just hanging on by a thread to survive. Talking of chaos of a slightly different kind, um, but we saw some extraordinary scenes in the Commons this week here in here in London. Um, there's been a real debate about pushing for a ceasefire, and it's been a lot in the news this week in the US, here in the UK. What kind of wording should be used? Does it feel like the tide is starting to turn amongst Israel's allies against Netanyahu's operation in Gaza? There's renewed urgency in terms of what many countries, including the US and the UK, are saying, really urging Israel to reconsider its operations in Rafah. Everyone's really worried about what will happen and what that could look like. I mean, we're already looking at 28, 29,000 deaths in the Gaza Strip at this point. The death toll is just horrific. It keeps going up. And these are really high numbers. And, and you know, this is Israel's 
longest war since the 40s, since its creation. So this is a really difficult and challenging moment. There's definitely more pressure, more and more organizations speaking out, trying to have a, trying to push Israel to reconsider. But in terms of the actual language used, it's similar to what we've seen all these months of war. It's tough, especially for the U.S., Israel's most staunch ally to navigate this. The Biden administration, we're looking at an election year in the U.S. This is not a conflict that the U.S. wants to be dealing with, to have any hand in really at this point, because there's just so much going on already in the U.S. And again, with the election year, we're talking about making big decisions at a time that could be very problematic politically for both the Democrats and the Republicans. So we're going to drill down into the US side of things later in this episode with one of our US correspondents. But I wonder what you think about China sticking its oar in. China obviously is your former beat. And this week they said that they condemned the US for vetoing a UN Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire. Do you think they actually believe that there should be a ceasefire in Gaza or is this just them meddling? China most likely really wants a ceasefire in Gaza. These tensions in the Middle East that are boiling over, they're not just isolated to Israel, Hamas. We're talking about conflicts in different countries across the region. And for China, they don't like to stick their neck out so much when it comes to global geopolitics like this, especially if it means having to take a side. They don't want to pick a side. They want to always, and they don't want to pick a side that unless they know it's going to win. And they just don't want to do that. They don't want to play that game. They want to be friends with everybody. But this particular situation is different. China does, in some respects, stand in solidarity with the Palestinians because they see Israel as uh, an occupying power. This goes back to many decades of Chinese history, which we've covered in previous podcasts. But the thing to note is that China is very much in this for itself because of how regional tensions have spilled over outside of Israel-Hamas into Yemen with the rebels, the Houthi rebels there firing missiles into the Red Sea, that has disrupted global shipping. This has disproportionately impacted China. China's still, as many other countries are recovering from COVID, the post-COVID economy. Their economy was already facing a lot of headwinds. Now they're even more. And China is the world's largest exporter. So with this shipping challenge that commercial vessels now need to route around the bottom of Africa, facing many weeks of delays, higher costs. This is something that China is really impacted by. Uh, they are the world's factory. So for a ceasefire to occur, that would be one step towards possibly de-escalating across the region. And that, in the long run, is beneficial for China because of global trade. That's fascinating because we've obviously heard a lot of con condemnation of the Houthis and their impact on global shipping, but we haven't really heard so much about the China angle. It, what is China doing to try and stop the Houthis from firing on ships? We've obviously heard about the West um, bombing parts of Yemen where the Houthis are in control. Is China involved at, at all? China doesn't seem to have done very much in terms of trying to get involved to have the Houthis back down. China does have a relationship, though, with Iran, pretty decent one. Again, this goes back to China wanting to be friends with everybody. To a certain extent, China could talk to Iran. Iran backs the Houthis. This is a long chain that could potentially have some impact. But this is something that China's 
less likely to do. They'll talk publicly about a ceasefire, again, because of this link to trade and, and China's economy and their own growth prospects, but sticking their neck out to talk to Iran to get a change in what's happening, this is not something, this, this is not something that China would typically want to do. It's a risk that they don't usually like to take. Thanks, Sophia. That was Sophia Yan, senior foreign correspondent. Now, the US has a major part to play in keeping the conflict going, both by providing weapons to Israel and by giving it political support internationally. But this week, we saw signs that maybe that was starting to crumble. I spoke to Rosina to find out more. Okay, so why don't we start with something quite unusual that happened this week, Roz, and that was the US proposing a UN Security Council resolution for some sort of ceasefire in Gaza. What did you make of that news? Yes, this is an extraordinary turn of events. Just to take listeners back a little, the US vetoed a resolution at the UN demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. It's the only member of the Security Council to do so. Britain abstained again. This is the third time the US has vetoed a resolution of this kind, and it has provoked condemnation not just from adversaries like China, but also America's allies, including France. America's ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, said the resolution would send the wrong message to Hamas. Linda Thomas-Greenfield said this was essentially giving the terror group something for nothing, and Washington fears it could jeopardise talks to end the war and get the remaining hostages released, which, let's not forget, includes an estimated six American citizens. However, we have seen a major shift in the US position as we You've just raised there, Venetia. Washington has proposed its own draft resolution uh, during a temporary ceasefire. Now, the US has previously avoided the word ceasefire during UN votes on the war. But we've seen Joe Biden increasingly use the word in the last few weeks. If we cast our minds back a few months, Biden would steadfastly avoid using that word. He would call for a pause in the fighting. So the US's proposed draft resolution represents the first time they have used the term ceasefire at the UN with regard to this conflict. And just a reminder that UN Security Council resolutions are legally binding, so Israel would have to comply. That's super interesting. I guess two questions. One, where do we think this shift is coming from? And two, when do we think this vote might be actually put to the test in the Security Council? Well, so this is still a draft resolution. Linda Thomas-Greenfield has invited other governments to consult on the document, but hasn't given an indication of when it might be offered for a vote yet. But just to go into the detail of this, the distinction with the resolution they vetoed and the one the US is putting forward, the one they vetoed was put forward by Algeria on behalf of the Arab groups at the UN. That called for an immediate ceasefire. Now, what the US is saying is they want a ceasefire, a temporary ceasefire, as soon as practicable. They are also saying, you know, the condition of this is that all hostages are released, as well as an end to any barriers on aid reaching Gaza. So if that means more points of access for aid to be delivered or removing any impediments to the current situation. 
The US resolution also warns Israel not to invade the border city of Rafah, where more than a million Palestinians are currently crammed in, surviving in desperate conditions. Now, there's been a lot of chatter in the diplomatic circle about just what a sizable shift in the US position this represents. Barack Obama's former Middle East envoy is among those saying this really does speak to the frustration the Biden administration feels with Benjamin Netanyahu and his government at the moment. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because US and Israel has always been a very tight relationship and Biden himself has very personally strong feelings in support of Israel. He visited Israel decades ago and he has always been very supportive of the country. But this rift that we're apparently seeing between him and Netanyahu, some of it playing out quite publicly. I don't know where these briefings and leaks are coming from, language that we probably can't use in a podcast appearing that Biden is supposed to have called Netanyahu. What do you think Rafa, when we look back, will turn out to be some sort of tipping point in the US-Israel relationship? I think we're already at that tipping point. I think we've really seen the anger from the White House and Joe Biden in particular spill out into the public in the last few weeks. You mentioned just there about the the backroom briefings, the leaks to the press about what Biden's been saying behind closed doors about Benjamin Netanyahu. But we saw that actually in front of the cameras in the last few weeks. We saw a hugely frustrated Joe Biden recently hold an impromptu press conference at the White House where he made an off-the-cuff remark. He said Israel's response in Gaza had been over the top. I'm of the view, as you know, that the conduct of the response in the Gaza Strip has been um, over the top. Now, compare that to a few months ago when Biden was repeatedly touting America's unwavering support for Israel. And you can see just how much the landscape has changed. Now, of course, Biden has known Netanyahu or Bibi, as he likes to call him, for decades. But that's not to say this has been a particularly warm relationship. When Joe Biden served as Barack Obama's vice president, Obama and Netanyahu had a very frosty relationship. Netanyahu has made no secret of the fact that he enjoyed a much warmer relationship with Donald Trump, who, of course, was Biden's predecessor in the White House and is now running to retake the Oval Office from Biden this November. So that is the backdrop to this relationship. Biden notably declined to extend an invitation to Netanyahu to the White House for an incredibly long time after taking office. He finally ended the snub last November to extend an invitation ahead of a visit by the Israeli President Isaac Herzog. Benjamin Netanyahu knows that he could be dealing with a very different US president with a very different approach to Israel within the next year. So that is the backdrop to this relationship. And that is a point of pressure at the moment. And that pressure is starting to be exerted at home as well, right? I'd love to hear you're on your way to CPAC, the annual Conservative Political Conference. Um, How is the conflict between Israel and Gaza playing out in America in terms of the domestic political situation ahead of the election this year? Well, a very interesting debate happening on both sides of the political divide at the moment. 
I am heading to CPAC later today. It's the biggest gathering of grassroots conservatives in the US. And we've seen really strong support for Israel among the Republican Party going back throughout the party's history. What we're seeing at the moment, however, is a strain of the GOP, the most hardline conservative members of the party are now starting to put conditions on support for Israel. So they want to see more fiscal responsibility. And for the first time, we're hearing discussion of any aid to Israel being offset by budget costs elsewhere, which is a new new point of discussion within the GOP. So I'm interested to hear from the senior Republican figures we'll be hearing on stage at CPAC later today and and throughout the rest of the week to hear what they have to say on the topic. But then again, on the Democratic side, this is causing a huge domestic headache for Joe Biden. We will have a very good demonstration of just how much this could hurt Joe Biden within days. The Democratic and Republican primary process is currently playing out here. And Michigan, a key state, will be holding its primary next Tuesday, February 27th. Now, influential Democrats in the state are encouraging the party's voters there to cast their ballots, not for Joe Biden, but to vote uncommitted. And they're aiming to get 10,000 votes for an uncommitted candidate, an uncommitted ballot. Now, this isn't going to change the course of the Democratic primary. Joe Biden, an incumbent president, is almost guaranteed to win the Democratic nomination, barring something spectacular happening. This is a symbolic vote, but it could speak to wider apathy and could give us a good indication of how voters are thinking about the general election in November Michigan is a critical swing state. It was one of the states that decided the outcome of the 2020 election, and it will be decisive again in 2024. So just a handful of voters in a handful of swing states could determine the outcome of this election. Michigan has a huge Arab American population. So we've seen a huge amount of anger there. It's not isolated to Michigan. We're seeing this in a number of states where progressives, where minority groups feel hugely let down by Joe Biden's approach to this conflict. They feel the White House hasn't done enough to alleviate the suffering they're seeing in Gaza, the huge number of civilian casualties we've seen. So if progressives if minority groups who previously came out and supported Joe Biden decide not to vote for Donald Trump, but to simply not vote at all in November, that could really hurt Joe Biden. Thanks so much, Ros, for joining us. That was Rosina Sabur, our deputy US editor. Finally, we head to Kyiv to hear from our own David Knowles, host of Battle Lines and Ukraine The Latest. He's recently arrived in Ukraine, and I asked him what the mood was like ahead of the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion. Hi, Venetia, and good evening from Kyiv, the capital city of Ukraine, where I've been for a week, staying another week to report on the ongoing full-scale invasion. It's an important week here in Kyiv. It's not only 10 years since the start of the Maidan protests, which led to the revolution of dignity, it's also almost two years since the start of the full-scale invasion. I've been to Kiev, I think, four or five times now over several trips, and 
it does feel a little different. The city is a lot quieter. There are still lots of billboards up advertising the army, of course, and the mood is very somber. In lots of conversations, people are very worried. The front lines may be 800 miles away down in Kupiansk or near Avdivka or Robotine in, in Zaporizhia, but people are aware that the Russians are on the move, they're going forward. As one contact put it to me, and we can talk about Western aid to Ukraine in a second, but he said, look, the West can provide uh, artillery, munitions, uh, tanks, aircraft, and so on and so forth. What they can't do is provide more Ukrainians to fight. That's the object, of course, of a new law which has been passed by the Rada here, by the Rada here in Ukraine. And the object of that is to find more people for the fight. The Russians have far many more soldiers than the Ukrainians do, and at the moment they have far more shells and artillery pieces, etc. Where are those people going to come from? Uh, another friend mentioned yesterday when I saw her that her father has received uh, papers not to mobilize him, but to register him for mobilization. So this is somebody who served for a short time in the, in the Soviet army. That's how long ago we're talking. And they're now really worried that he could be called up. So what are people doing? Well, some the majority of people I speak to are trying to talk to the regiments, trying to find battalions where they, their relatives or their sons or their cousins or whoever may be well-treated, where they do have enough body armour and weapons and training. And what nobody wants is for their loved ones to be put into a unit and then sent straight for the, to the front. We don't know exactly how many men, Ukraine, men and women, Ukraine has lost in the full-scale invasion, but it's very, very high. And of course, Ukraine, despite being the largest country in Europe, by sheer sort of hectares by size, and is a very large country, 40 million people, really. Russia is so much bigger. So if the war comes down to who has the most men, they will start to lose. And there's even some suggestion that they are losing now. What needs to happen? Well, there's several things. Everybody we speak to is gloomy about the prospect of Western aid. We know that the United States' aid bill is held up in Congress. We don't know when that's going to be passed. And the shell shortage on the front line, every day that that goes on, the shell shortage gets worse. And we hear stories of Ukrainian units almost unable to fire back. And there's some suggestion that air defence in the future may have to choose which missiles and um, drones to let through and what to defend because they're fast running out of the stuff needed to defend their cities. So the atmosphere is gloomy. There's no suggestion yet, that, as far as I can hear, that the will to fight is gone at all. In fact, there's a, I would say the opposite, there's a grim determination to carry on no matter what, because what most Ukrainians, what Ukrainians know is that to live under Russian occupation would be insufferable. It is insufferable for the millions already there, right? In, in occupied Donbass, we hear some of the stories of what happens there, the tortures, the extrajudicial killings, the brainwashing, if you can call it that, the Russification, a word that goes back centuries of Ukrainian children, of the adult population through television and through social media. The most depressing feeling here is that there, nobody can see any way that this ends soon and nobody can see any way that it ends. It's just going to go on. I spoke to Andrei Kirchhoff, the author, earlier, and he said this conflict goes back 300 years to the Battle of Poltava. And this war, this conflict, this tension uh, has been going on for hundreds of years. This is just the most recent iteration of it. And still there is no sense in which this ends. There's no, We have no sense that the aggressor nation, uh, Russia, led by Vladimir Putin, has any plan to stop soon. Medvedev came out today, in fact, and said we, we, were going to, we are going to get all the way to Kiev. I mean, from here, from tonight anyway, very peaceful Kiev. That feels very unlikely. But what doesn't feel unlikely at all is that this war, this full-scale war, this war that's transformed uh, power relations across the world, that's ripped up the 
quote-unquote rules-based global order in place since the Second World War for all its advantages and obvious disadvantages, that is gone. We are in a new reality. And uh, the heart of the maelstrom here in Ukraine, there's no sense this ends anytime soon. That's potentially the one lesson that I've had from this trip. But we will continue. We're talking to lots of people here, from artists to journalists to ordinary people living their lives. And it still astonishes me the resilience and the fortitude that so many display in the face of such unbridled aggression and terror. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph. Or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest. Battle Lines is produced by David Dargahi, and the executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles.